from the Bada College. In AD&D 2nd Edition, there were several series of books that had leather coverettes. The dark red books were the player-facing books, the dark blue books were the DM-facing books, and the black covers were campaign-setting-specific expansions. There was also a green book series, the historical reference series, that adapted AD&D for running games in a fantasy version of Earth into different eras. H.R. 1, the Vikings campaign source book, informed the DM that you couldn't be a Viking and be a ranger. But rangers might come from Finland. I had a friend in high school that was an exchange student from Finland. Mm-hmm, that's right. And he did indeed confirm that between learning to play guitar and going to school for nuclear physics, he was indeed a ranger. Get out of here with that nuclear bomb stuff. Nobody likes it. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the metaphoric pizza topping we both agree on. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became head gnome. Can't believe that's actually been two years at this point. <sighs> wow. It doesn't Time feel like it has weird. been that long. Of course, the last three years almost don't <laughs> really exist anyway. And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnomes Do. I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnomes Do, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in our campaign journal, or not running as the case may be, <laughs> We'll be talking about setting boundaries for your campaigns. And then we're going to have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So, moving on to my campaign journal. I still haven't run anything. <laughs> but I am prepping for an off-books one-shot that I'll be running at Origins for the teens of some friends. Awesome. One of the kids is new to RPGs. And they're a little shy, so we're trying to make sure that they get some good experiences at their first big con. They are signed up for other events, but my friend, who is the mother of this kid's current boyfriend, significant other, whatever you want to call them, wants to make sure that this kid gets some good experiences with role-playing games and knows that sometimes it can be a little bit of a spin on the roulette wheel for con games. <laughs> I am making their characters for them. Uh, we currently have a dragonborn fighter, because we figure that'll be easy for the newbie. A phantom rogue, because I asked the mom to ask the kid. I'm like, hey, would he mind playing a creepy rogue? <laughs> the response was, he says it sounds cool. Uh, <laughs> one of the kids wants to play a war-forged forge cleric. <laughs> and then... The last one I was told wants to be an elf wizard, but then we found out he actually meant an elf cleric. <laughs> so I've kind of compromised for him. And instead of being an elf wizard, he's going to be an elf divine soul sorcerer. Ah. That way he'll be able to do the healing like he wants to do, but he can still blow things up. Yeah. Best of both worlds. Yeah. I have some ideas for the session planned out, but I don't have anything fully statted out just yet. So I need to get that done 
between now and Origins. I'll be running this game, I believe, on the 21st, so the first day of the con. I also need to get the maps printed out because I'm going full on kids want this game. I'm going to give them a show. <laughs> and then I've got to pick out minis. I did get to play twice since we last recorded. Awesome. Uh, I got to play in my buddy Scott's Undermountain campaign, where we are currently on the swamp level of Undermountain. <laughs> this makes absolutely no sense at all, but this is a dungeon populated by a mad mage. Yep. We ended up finding a drow chained to the wall. And when we talked to him, we found out we murdered his friends who were basically under mind control by some Naga. We felt appropriately bad about that. That was the backstory that your DM was telling you you were missing out on. <laughs> well, he mentioned he mentioned that every single drow that is presented in this book is given a full name and a bit of backstory. <laughs> he doesn't know why, because not all NPCs are treated this way, but every single drow has a name. <laughs> and like he'll be reading later in the book and it'll reference a drow that was three chapters ago that we never even ran into, but they've got a name and they've got a story. <laughs> anyway, we did discover there was mind control by Naga and so on and so forth. So we went over to fight the Naga and this proved to be a pretty fun battle. It was a large area with a waterfall coming in at one end we have no idea where the water was going because <laughs> the map doesn't really show the water going anywhere, but it does come down into this pool in a waterfall. And we have three Naga at one end and two Naga at the other end. And we started this fight and our cleric basically dropped a reverse gravity on the three Naga that were closest to us. And I had kind of missed that this was a perpetual effect and not a <laughs> instant effect, because the way I've seen it in Celasta is it's an instant effect. It happens, and then it's done. Well, apparently, as long as the caster maintains concentration, it actually stays as a effect in the area. And I was like, well, I attacked the guy. How are you going to do that? He's on the ceiling. And I was like... Well, with some prodding from a couple of folks, I'm like, I'm a badass warrior. I basically <laughs> leapt into the gravity field, mm -hmm. made my athletics check, landed spectacularly with a superhero landing with the hair <laughs> toss and everything, and then stabbed the heck out of one of the Nagas. So it was it was a pretty cool moment. And then we had a couple of other people make use of the gravity field as well. It also felt kind of cool that we were draining the swamp because all the water <laughs> in the swamp was going up into the gravity field. We did a little bit more exploring. We found this weird vision thing that was, there was no saving throw. It was just like all of a sudden you're caught up in this vision of uh, an old battle between Yonti and Naga. And it was weird. I know the GM tried to make it interesting, but it was just a little <laughs> odd. Uh, and then after that, we found an undead Naga that we fought and we found more portals and we realized we had been going quite a bit so we decided we're going to take a long rest and we will pick up in the next session so basically when you ran into that uh that vision it was like a cutscene. <laughs> <laughs> it was it really was scott was actually talking about possibly like setting up that scene in roll 20 and making a switch vtt's <laughs> and play that scene out in roll 20 but it was set up in such a way that we were aware aware something weird was happening before all of us could get sucked into it, so it didn't really come <laughs> off quite as cool as I think he was hoping it would, but it was also kind of poorly set up in the, the module. 
Now, the other game I got to play was not Jared's, unfortunately. <laughs> but Tristan started his Night's Dark Terror game, which is a modernized version of an old module from way back when. Uh, and we actually got to play in person with pizza and wings. <laughs> it was awesome. Now, we mostly worked out our characters via email. Uh, we had kind of an ongoing thread throughout the week where we talked about different ideas about our characters. So this is something to be careful of as a GM, but if you trust your players, people can do this ahead of time without ending up having incompatible characters when everyone gets to the table. You just have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Keep talking about it through email instead of people being in their own little isolated bubbles making characters. During the session, we spent probably the first hour doing some details, working out history, getting to know these characters, because they were supposed to all have been adventuring mm -hmm. together for a little while. I am playing a half-elf gloomstalker ranger focused on archery because I really wanted to play an archer ranger. And <laughs> unfortunately, 5e doesn't really make that easy, but we're doing it. The party also has a barbarian rogue, so they can stab you with rage extra hard. Uh, we have a halfling paladin with kind of um, a small guy complex. <laughs> we have a tabaxi warlock who is dumb as a box of rocks because she modeled it on her cat, who is dumb as a box of rocks. Uh, we have an orc cleric who is just the cutest himbo ever. <laughs> and then we have a, uh, what did he call it? He's a gnome drizzard. He's basically <laughs> a wizard and a druid combined because Chris can't not multiclass. <laughs> Because of the way the module is set up, we immediately started out broke and needing a job, so we got hired to head to a small homestead and help guard a transport of horses. We, of course, got ambushed on our way there on a riverboat, uh, which hinted at some weird cultish things going on. We got to our, our stop on the river and discovered the person we were supposed to meet up with had been dead, and we found this out from her bear, who was very sad and in mourning. Aww. But thankfully, because I'm playing a ranger, we didn't murder hobo him because he didn't try to eat us. <laughs> we ended up getting to the homestead and found it under attack by goblins, and buildings were on fire, and we had a small skirmish with some goblins, and then cliffhanger, we get to find out what happens the next time we play. Dun dun dun. So, unfortunately, I have nothing to say because we didn't get to play our uh, Thursday night game. <laughs> However, you know, you can't trust me when I say I have nothing to say because I'll find something to say. I am uh, getting ready to run the Saturday game with my uh, daughter's group. So I've been throwing together a scenario where their group will be trying to find allies in order to keep the forces of the dragon and the forces of the undead that are warring against one another from uh, getting too close to the settlements and causing harm. So I set up the factions that I kind of want them to decide who they want to go talk to. And I'm definitely have that, you know, Dragon Age vibe in my head, you know, where you're thinking about you, who are you going to recruit and what are you going to do in order to talk them into helping you? And the factions that I set up are orcs, dwarves and Shadarkai. And the Shadarchai I'm using because they already have part of the woods that they live in that have been overrun by the Shadowfell. So I thought, you know what? Instead of just regular elves, why not make it creepy Shadowfell elves? And the dwarves and the orcs, I just, I kind of like the idea that the dwarves will have an axe to grind against the uh, dragon, but maybe not a 
reason to go into the woods to help out the people there. And the orcs, I'm going to have them have a previous rivalry with the Hobgoblin mercenaries. So I think it'll be fun to see how they interact with these factions and how they try and get them on their side to help out the innocents of the region. So that's all I have going on at this point. Hopefully we'll get to play your game soon. It's just, you know, health issues came up. It is an ongoing struggle and every so often things are completely out of alignment for a while and hopefully we get realigned. Yep. All right, let's look in the Dungeon Master's Workshop, which today we're going to be talking about setting boundaries in your campaign. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. While it's very important to include safety in your consideration for how campaigns will be presented, most of what we're going to be looking at today is about setting boundaries to reinforce themes and genres. That said, it's very important to know your players' lines and veils, so you don't attempt to build a campaign on concepts that you won't be able to flesh out comfortably. With all of that in place, and why would you want to exclude material from your campaign? Because there's way too damn much of it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one reason. I did find with um, back when playing uh, 3.5, especially towards the end of 3.5, I mean, even towards the middle of 3.5, they were pumping out books like they were candy. So mm. there was so much material that a lot of times it was just easier for a GM to say, make your characters from these books or pick a small selection of books to allow for options for characters or even what they want to put into play in the game. I think there's also a point of if you as a GM have a particular idea of what you want the campaign to be. You know, you may want to limit what classes are available or what species are available just to, you know, get everything in line for the campaign that you're trying to run. Have you ever excluded material from a campaign that you were going to run, Jared? Yeah, I mean, usually the way I I frame it and you've seen a few of these, but I usually set up like a, a campaign document that says what all I would like to use in the campaign. And usually that's going to include like all of the books that I want people to draw stuff from. And sometimes I'll get granular granular enough to actually say, you know, I'd like to just use this subset of species or this subset of subclasses. And, you know, for for a lot of different reasons, sometimes it is because you don't want players just getting overwhelmed with the sheer amount of options that they have, which is like you were talking about at the end of three five, but even fifth edition especially since i have a ton of like kobold press books and all sorts of other things there can be a lot for people to sort through and make decisions on and sometimes you create you know decision paralysis when you introduce too many options and sometimes there are like Mm -hmm. themes in a campaign where you know you're trying to reinforce something and setting up boundaries helps to reinforce that thing that you're trying to uh set up One of my favorite campaigns when I was younger, we all played dwarves that were from the same kingdom. And that was a lot of fun to, you know, to see how different we could make a party of all mountain dwarves. Now, um, do you have any specific examples of a campaign that might benefit from restricting materials on, let's say, genre? So I would say, for example, this one's like jumped out at me a few times. Um, but if you're trying to do a 
say, let's say a Ravenloft story and you're trying to reinforce that gothic horror. Sometimes there are some species that no offense, some players are absolutely great and they could make it work. But if you have someone playing a Herongon and you have a big bunny person in the middle of Ravenloft, some people are not going to be able to play that within gothic horror and make it still feel like gothic horror. Oh, poor bunny. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, if you're going for a more sword and sorcery feel, a lot of times you may not want to be just humans, but you may want species that are all closer to human because that is a more grounded feel for that type of campaign. Yeah. We very specifically for... um Tristan's current campaign, he didn't want to necessarily limit us on what we were playing, but because this was a scenario based, um, I believe it's the Mistara before it was called Mistara. The known world. Yeah. He wanted to try and stay true to the setting without necessarily limiting what we play. So mm -hmm. we had to have conversations about things like the fact that I'm playing a half elf. Because there were no half-elves in the known world. Mm -hmm. Because when that came out, elf was your class. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just your species. It was who you were. So there was no mixing with humans. We also had a player who wanted to play an orc. Which can be problematic in some of the older modules where your big bad are the orcs. Mm -hmm. Well, why would people accept this character? So as long as... Like, everyone was on the same page about what we were playing and why and how that fits into the the setting. We were all able to go, but it's still something you want to be careful of as a GM. You know, I think one of the most common examples that's given is you want to run an urban campaign and somebody wants to bring a druid who hates the city into the game. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to tell you you can't play a druid. But your character has to have a reason to want to be here, okay? Sometimes there are bridges that you can build. If your city is not so well-defined that there's absolutely no way to work that in, but you could have a druid that tends a grove inside the city bounds, mm -hmm. in which case then you have talked about it and you've created that compromise. But yeah, just until you do that kind of research and find those bridges to build, yeah, you don't want to just say, make whatever. Sometimes, um... And sometimes you want to run a specific campaign setting mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, if I want to run Eberron, there are certain things that are in Eberron that are slightly different from the way they mm -hmm. are in other campaigns. Or let's say you want to run the Forgotten Realms, but one of your players really wants to play a Warforged. Mm -hmm. You can tell them no, because there's, quote unquote, no Warforged in Faerun. But you could also work with the player and come up with a reason for that Warforge to exist, which is what happened in my um, Tyranny of the Dragon Queen campaign I played in years ago at the beginning of 5e. Somebody wanted to play a Warforged monk. And the GM came up with this fantastic thing where the Warforged were basically artifacts left over from the Netherese. Mm -hmm. And like there was this whole section of the campaign not related to all the books based on that connection between Warforged and the Netherese and it was fantastic. We never would have had that if she'd just said no, but you still have to work to make it work. 
Right, yeah. Sometimes the boundary isn't like a hard no. Sometimes it's a soft boundary saying, okay, all of this stuff that is in the background of Warforged from Eberron may not be true in this setting, but we can include some of this stuff into the story that you have in this setting. Yeah. What's really interesting to me is one of the things that got me in 4th edition, as much as I actually kind of liked 4th edition D&D, is... They tried to basically say that anything they introduced in a fourth edition book, you should be able to use. So there weren't as many limits on, oh, the species doesn't exist here because they were trying to cross promote the entire line. So you would have psionic crystal golem people running around and you were trying to find a place for them, even though they didn't exist before. Yeah. But what was interesting to me is... um, Fifth edition, I kind of wondered if they were going to lean away from that. But most recently, like when they introduced the Dragonlance book, they actually give you a list of things in there that are like, these are not native to Kren. If you decide to include them, they aren't something that are assumed to actually exist in this setting. So you have to decide, are you going to rework the story to say they do exist in Kren? Are you going to have players that are from somewhere outside of Kren that have gotten pulled into this story? And I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't even in fifth edition seen them actually do what we, we were talking about in this episode, where sometimes you want a fantasy setting that isn't everything that has been conceived. Not every D&D game needs to be a kitchen sink of what is in D&D. Exactly. So what are some rules elements you might want to include or exclude from a campaign? I mean, we've kind of talked about species. I mean, what you're looking at is a lot of times, I think the big uh, rules elements that you're going to be playing with in the space is species, classes, subclasses, optional rules, and house rules. Species we already kind of talked about. Sometimes some species just don't seem like they fit the genre that's in a setting. Even classes, I think um, sometimes you benefit from not having a particular class in a setting. For example, I think you can work artificers into the Forgotten Realms pretty easily, but I can also picture, for example, if you were playing a Greyhawk game, that feels a little more gritty than the Forgotten Realms, and I can see there not being techno-mages that, you know, build contraptions that use magic in Greyhawk the same way there might be in Eberron. I could see wanting to run something a little more um, uh, low magic sword and sorcery, and mm-hmm. not allowing any of the three big arcane casters. You know, mm-hmm. maybe allowing the arcane trickster or the eldritch knight, you know, so maybe letting that in there, but keeping the big magic off to the side. You can be a hero that dabbles in this stuff, but you are not going to be someone that entirely lives in that sphere where you're using spells for everything. Right. I know, like, the midnight setting that, um, Edge Studios is putting out, which some people might remember Fantasy Flight doing a version of that in 3rd edition. There's a uh, version of it for 5th edition now. But in that setting, there are no warlocks because there's no connection to other planes there. It is cut off from all other planes, so you can't have, like, an Archfey or a demon, uh, demon Lord or anything cutting a deal with a warlock. How do they justify clerics? There actually are not clerics. Uh, well, there are clerics, but there's only clerics of the one evil god. If you've never seen Midnight, Midnight is the Lord of the Rings of Sauron 1. Ah. 
So the only clerics in the setting belong to that entity that has basically uh, Isridor that has won this war against the forces of light. However, there are rangers and paladins because you have people that are connected to nature or are devoted to bringing the light back, but you don't have full-blown clerics or, you know, things of that nature. Interesting. The other thing is, I mean, subclasses can do a lot to alter the flavor of a class. You know, Uh we were talking about that with, with the Eldritch Knight and the Arcane Trickster. But there's, like, a lot of others that, like, we had talked about this when we were talking about the Barbarian playtest, but if you want your Barbarians to just feel like normal human rage monsters, there's a lot of Barbarian subclasses that tap into kind of supernatural elements that you may not want in a setting if you want your Barbarians to just feel like regular people. Right, it's like they introduced, I want to say in Tasha's, they introduced a whole bunch of psionic classes. Mm-hmm. Specifically. Kizina is a soul knife. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to deal with psionics in a game, then you might not want to have a soul knife or a psy knight or some of these other classes that are very psy based. <laughs> the aberrant mind sorcerer that, you know, gets their psionic abilities from things touching their brains in bad places. <laughs> <laughs> This is something to me that's interesting because there are a lot of optional rules in the DMG that people often don't see. I think those optional rules actually turn a lot of different dials and campaign settings too. Mm-hmm. If you look in your DMG, you have fourth edition style heroic recovery rules where your short rests are only 10 minutes or, you know, you can, you know, spend a hit dice in combat to recover some of your hit points or, the opposite direction where, you know, you get slower hit point recovery and hit dice recovery. So those are dials that you may want to turn up or up or down and create those borders around. Like, do you really want your adventurers to wake up every morning with all their hit points? Or do you want them to feel like, you know, they got some bumps and bruises left over from last night? Of course, if you do that, you also need to dial your encounters up and down as well. If you're letting them heal more often, more frequently, or your short rests are only 10 minutes, you need to ramp up your encounters a little bit. If you're not letting them heal fully overnight, then you probably want to dial your encounters down a little bit, because standard could get a little deadly for those characters. Maybe that's what you want. Maybe you're that kind of GM. I don't want to play in your game, but there we go. Yeah, and I think the most important thing here is, as we've already said, work with your players. Sometimes you can find a compromise to keep that feel that you want without completely disallowing something. But also, you are the DM, you are also a player, so everybody should be happy with the decisions you're making, not just either the players or the DM. I think that's one of the important keys about why you would set parameters on your campaign. This is your fun, too. If you want to run a specific type of game, you need to put some bumper bowling bumpers around what your players are allowed to do. I will very often, when I pitch a campaign to my players, I will put right in it what that framework is. For the most recent um, Eberron campaign, it was you are an adventurer that wants to compete in this competition to go to Zendrick. 
why you want to do that is up to you. I, you know, was open to whatever they wanted to play, but you have to want to be here. The previous Eberron campaign was you need to have willingly served in this mercenary company during the last war in service to the country of Brayland. Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to play is allowable as long as those things line up, which meant somebody didn't necessarily look at playing somebody from Karnath or from Arenal or one of the other countries. They mostly kept it to around Rayland, but it, it basically helped set up the framework for that campaign to make it a little easier for me, but still gave them all the flexibility to make the characters they wanted to play. I will admit, if I, if I were to run the Dragonlance adventure that came out, I very much have my old school Dragonlance feels. So I would want people not necessarily trying to shoehorn in some more five, you know, 5e things that didn't exist back when Dragonlance first came out as a setting where I really, you know, don't want to push the boundaries. I kind of don't want sorcerers, even though you could make them work because they weren't a thing back then. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that, you know, I might budge here or there if we could work out a story. But you do have like a thought in your head, like this is what I really want to see when I do this. I've run um, games in the Forgotten Realms that were set in the Dale Lands, and you can say you can find almost anything in the Forgotten Realms somewhere in the Forgotten Realms, but I kind of wanted it to feel like they were from this rural background and everyone was from that area. So we did kind of restrict it to, you know, humans, halflings, half elves. You know, there aren't a whole lot of full blooded elves around things like that so that it felt more like you are specifically from the Dale lands. And maybe if after you become adventurers and you go somewhere else and you want to retire a character, you could have like a moon elf show up and replace them or something like that. But just to get that feeling started, I kind of wanted people to zero in on what would be local to the Dale lands. Yeah. So what are some story elements that you might want to include or exclude getting away from rules elements now? Let's talk about silly names, because <laughs> that is one of those things where I try and be flexible with my players, but sometimes I really got to put my foot down about some names <laughs> that are just too goofy, because if it breaks the immersion or the verisimilitude for me, it's probably also doing it for the other players. My buddy Scott has a character that is... He's from a campaign that is legendary among the group. We all love this campaign. We all love his character. But I still cringe every time I say his name. Spudiferous. <laughs> what even is that? But it was his character. The GM allowed it. So I rolled with it. But I'm also the GM that told a player he could not call his character Brosif. His name could be Joseph, and everyone could call him Bro, but you are not naming him Broseph. Oh, I had a friend in high school that was not part of our usual D&D group that wanted to learn how to play, and he made a wood elf fighter, and he named him Bart Sampson. <laughs> and had he been a regular part of the group, and I didn't you know, fear giving him a bad impression of D&D &D the first time he played by saying, no, do it again. <laughs> Try again. I would have said no, but 
this was his first character and I was like, I am going to wince every single time someone refers to this character's name. <laughs> but these days, I will just let you know, if you play in my campaign and try and name a character Bart Sampson, I am probably going to say, could we please find something different? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, what about Iseki characters? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I use the, the anime term for this, but basically that is um, a character that comes from a world that is not in the same genre as the world that they come to. Oh, to okay. So like the kids from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or, you know, something of that nature. Unless you're building the campaign around that, I'm probably not going to allow it. If you're running Spelljammer, maybe. You know, because Spelljammer, you're kind of opening things up to a wider variety of things. But if it's my standard D&D game, I'd like you to fit the genre. You know, I mean, th there's something to be said about everyone in the group playing a character who is maybe from the real world and suddenly finding themselves in these characters. But most of the time, no. I think there's been some good characters that have come from that kind of, you know, cross genre play. Like, you know, I like the warlord from DC, who was an Air Force pilot that crashed into Tartarus, the forgotten lands in DC comics where he became a warlord in this area that had dinosaurs and magic and all of that. That was a great character. It was a great series. John Carter is another, you know, big example of this where... You know, you have a character from Earth that goes into this uh, sword and planet setting, but it definitely does not fit every genre. As an example, I would not want a character like that in a Dragonlance game. Well, and to be fair, most of those examples you listed, that dichotomy of the character in the setting is the focus of the story. And unless you want this to be the focus of your campaign, you probably shouldn't allow it. Yeah. You want to make sure that, I mean, you can work with the player that wants to do something like this and maybe help them make a character that feels a little more like that with more grounding in the setting. But I don't, I don't, I don't want your, I don't want your, your peanut butter in my chocolate in this instance. Yeah, I had a player um, in a Star Wars Age of Rebellion game that I was playing, getting slightly away from D&D, but this is a, I think this is a good example. And he wanted to play a character like Crichton from uh, Farscape, where he was like an astronaut from Earth that got lost in the Star Wars galaxy. And I was like, that's so far outside of what most Star Wars stories do that that would make this not feel like a Star Wars game for me. You could get away with that in a Star Trek game. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, Star Trek is connected to our reality and has time travel stuff in it. Star Wars is... It's fantasy in space. It is not connected to our reality. And I think that's a, a good example, even though it's outside of D&D, that you can have things in the same broad genre where that concept will work in one and definitely not in the other. I have friends who have run a campaign where they allowed players to bring in a favorite character from any game they've ever played. Mm-hmm. And one player brought in her psychic from a superhero game. Another player brought in uh, his Jedi from a Star Wars campaign. And, but there was a whole setup for this campaign on why these characters from the multiverse were drawn together to go forth and fight evil and 
deal with stuff in the, the multiplanes. It was a cool concept, but that was the concept of the campaign. Yeah. It wasn't like the player of the Jedi tried to bring his Jedi into the superhero campaign. Yeah. You know, that we didn't do that. And, and honestly, yeah, you could have a campaign that was set up kind of like Stephen King's uh, Dark Tower series, where you have kind of this meta reality that touches on all of these other realities, and therefore it makes sense to have someone that's more of a an Old West-type paladin, you know, together with maybe like a techno wizard and that sort of thing. And some of this is just flavoring. You don't necessarily need that, that many more rules for it. But like you said, that is very much the focus of what this campaign is going to feel like, not something you want to drop into a campaign that already has its own feel to it. So here is a boundary that I think is kind of interesting because it's a little bit different than excluding classes, but setting a boundary on what you expect of the classes. And by this, I mean, what if there are only a handful of wizards and your PC just happens to be one of the very few that actually exists? That sort of boundary of expectation. You're not going to go into every town and meet a wizard in every town. You're one of the only one. Right. I, I think that is an interesting uh, dial that you can turn for campaigns as well. I think it is as well. And I've had this conversation with my players. I think I even brought it up on one of our previous campaign mm -hmm. journals where I had to have a conversation with the players where there was a character, who had, an NPC who had some after effects from a curse. They had healed him enough that he was going to survive and all of that. But I described some physical manifestations of the curse that were remaining. And like one of the players is like, oh, just go find a cleric who can cast this. And I'm like, that is not something that your average person is going to ever be able to find. In fact, the cleric they know that might be able to cast that is one of you PCs. And that is several levels away for you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you you need to set the boundaries of just because, you know, it's coming up in the book for your class doesn't mean there's an NPC that will have that available in the next town over. You know, you really need to be aware of that type of thing. Yeah, I think that was something as much as I mean, I don't necessarily want to go back to where everything has to be defined by the rules the way it was in three five. But that was something that was interesting in Eberron in 3.5. Mm -hmm. Most of the magical stuff that is ubiquitous that people can buy, that's not made by artificers. Artificers are fairly rare. That's made by Magerites, which are like NPCs that can do tiny bits of what an artificer can. Yeah. You know, they may not be able to make all kinds of magic items. You might have somebody that knows how to make wands or maybe even wands of light. Yeah, something <laughs> simple. They have one thing they can make they sell they make their living on this so um what makes adding boundaries to your game different than just being a mean tyrannical dm telling your party how they're <laughs> going to play the game <laughs> honestly it's something we've been talking about this entire time and that is working with your players on their characters that they want to bring into the game you want to have enthusiastic buy-in from your players on this campaign you don't get that by telling them, no, that doesn't exist in my world. Mm -hmm. That's just going to make them be like, oh, I'm not sure I want to play in this campaign. Or they play just because they don't have any other alternatives and haven't found another game to go play yet. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can you can set the boundaries on what is available for them to play without killing their ideas and 
thereby killing their enthusiasm for the game. You know, the flip side of that, too, is you want your players to be enthusiastic about the ideas that you present them. But there are times when you really want to run a specific thing. And if you can't find that middle ground, sometimes you have to realize maybe I need to take a break from running and see if somebody else wants to Mm -hmm. run for a while and I can just play. And maybe I'll get, you know, a different campaign in my head that I want to try out for the uh, group. But this isn't going to be the one that we're going to try. Right. Sometimes it's worth saying that I want to do this very specific thing. I don't want to compromise it too much. I'm going to put this in my back pocket until I find a group that is really enthusiastic about it. Right. And I think the important difference between a mean, tyrannical DM and your average DM is going (laughs) to be how they they interact with the input from the players. Not every game Mm -hmm. needs to be built up at the table by the entire table. You don't have to do that for every game. That could be a very cool um, way to build a campaign, but you don't have to do it for every campaign. But you still want to work with your players on their ideas for what they want to see in this campaign. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is not D&D, um, but it is, it's, it's loosely 5e related. We're going to be playing a Highlander game at Origins, which is based on uh-huh. Everyday Heroes. And I am currently working on my character, who was a a Spanish nun in a thousand one ten twenty three, <laughs> who was uh, no, she was born in ten twenty three because she's exactly a thousand years old. In ten forty something, she was basically tried as a heretic and burned as a stake. And like she's got all of this, she was a Catholic nun. Got all this, so I've been working with the GM on what my expectations are about churches and faith and what holy ground actually means we fully agreed that a mega church run by a televangelist only focused on prosperity gospel does not qualify as holy ground (laughs) you know we agreed on this yep i i understand yeah you want to work with your players on what they need to see in the game for their characters to keep them excited and make sure it still works with the game you want to run these are things all, this is what makes the best game possible. Speaking of 5e adjacent things, I really want to hear your opinions on that Highlander game because that's probably one of the more intriguing, one of the cinematic settings that they're doing for that Everyday Heroes game. Yeah. And I'm really curious to see how it plays out and like how much you can customize characters from each other and things like that. This is probably going off on a tangent, but we have <laughs> we have five players and we have three characters who have chosen the archetypes in the Highlander book. There's three archetypes mm-hmm. in the Highlander book, and then there's available all the other ones in the main book. Mm-hmm. And then we have two others who have chosen um, archetypes from the uh, the main book. And it's been an interesting, you know, mix of seeing how these characters fit together. My character will not survive the gathering. I do not see her surviving the gathering. <laughs> she is a wise hero with the sleuth archetype and she's very <laughs> smart. She's very astute. She knows a lot of things. She can hold her own in a fight, but she probably wouldn't be able to stand up against any of the three that are based on the archetypes in the Highlander book. But we will see once we're in play. We are not playing an adversarial game. We have all agreed that we don't want to 
We don't want PvP. We understand that that's something that may happen in this campaign in the future, but right now we're not interested in PvP. But that doesn't mean we're not still going to end up dealing with the dueling mechanics and all of that as we work with NPCs and flashbacks and stuff like that. However, to bring us back on topic, all of that negotiating that you did is setting boundaries for your campaign and what you're expecting out of it. Because your core assumption for a Highlander game could very easily be, I want to cut somebody else's head off if they're an immortal. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. This is is why we all talked about what characters we were making. We talked about our, we talked about the campaign we wanted to play in session zero. These are the things you do to help set the parameters. You as the GM can set the parameters of the campaign that you want to run because you want to run something that you're excited about, but you need to work with the players to make sure they're also enthusiastically excited about playing these characters in your game. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Moving on to downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. I'm going to talk about the new DLC from Solasta. (laughs) Solasta is the video game that we have talked about before. It's based on 5e. They just came out at the end of May with a new expansion called The Palace of Ice, which introduced gnomes and tieflings to the game and raised the level cap to 16. I have already played and finished this, and I am really impressed with what they did with the story in this one. Mm -hmm. I was talking about it with Jared, and he made the comment that It reminds him of Neverwinter Nights and how the first campaign was fine, but the real storytelling mastery came in the later DLC. And while I wasn't that impressed with the Lost Valley DLC, I'm still thinking about the ending of the Palace of Ice, (laughs) and I really want to talk about it with somebody. And I don't know anybody else who's finished it. So, yeah, there you go. I think the other thing that's really you know, constantly kind of fascinated me about Celasta is unlike even Neverwinter Nights, you really get a feel for how 5e rules work playing that game. Like you might even remind yourself of how rules are supposed to work playing that game that you have forgotten just playing the tabletop game because you can see how it is implemented in this game where it's hard coded into the game. Yeah, I always knew that Spirit Guardians was a powerful spell. I did not realize how powerful it was until I started using it in Solasta and would basically turn on the blender centered on my cleric and then just wander (laughs) into a horde of monsters. Uh, Well, speaking of setting boundaries for your campaign, um, if you want some nice worksheets for keeping track of your decisions and a nice checklist for what you should have ready at the beginning of a campaign, I am going to suggest the Lazy DMs Companion and Lazy DMs Workbook. These have been out for a while. Um, These are put out by Sly Flourish. And um, not only do they have the resources that I mentioned, but they have lots of useful things like encounter maps, quick encounter builders, example names for NPCs, or, you know, if you can't think of one on the fly, multi-purpose maps. So there is just a lot of stuff. It is a great toolbox to have at your ready when you're a DM. 
and it also has some nice formatted ways for you to keep track of decisions that you have made about what you're going to use in a campaign. The lazy DM stuff is good. Even if you're not in an experienced GM, it's worth taking a look at because there's a lot of useful stuff there. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out... Bonus Experience! Monica and friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. Hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.